All right, welcome to the Ramit Show. I am super excited. Uh, first of all, it's been a while. Uh, so, hi everyone. Let us uh, let me know where you're joining from. And uh, I'm super excited for today's session because uh, we have our uh, interesting uh, combo back, which is Lior and Ryan from Monte Carlo. Uh, Lior uh, Gavish is the CEO and co-founder of Monte Carlo and Ryan Kearns, who's the data scientist at Monte Carlo. I'm super excited to host both of them. We'll be discussing about data, data observability uh, for generative AI and much more. Uh, so feel free to uh, ask your questions. Uh, we'll be discussing uh, many more topics. We'll be definitely discussing about the upcoming impact event. Uh, which is the big conference hap that's happening on the November 8th. So feel free to uh, let me know and ask those difficult questions to Lior and Ryan. But with without any further ado, let's have uh, Lior and Ryan up here. Hey, Lior, Ryan, welcome to The Robert Show. Again, it's such a pleasure to have you both. I remember we spoke uh, almost close to more than a year now. It's been a while, the time flies, but... Uh, there, there are so many interesting topics in uh, discussions that uh, we should be having today, for sure. Thank you for having us, Ravit. It was so much fun last time. Excited to be back. Yeah, it's good to be back. Awesome. Hey, Ravit. Hey, everyone. Fantastic. Uh, just for, uh, I, and I'm pretty sure the audience uh, who are joining us, they know you. Uh, but still, uh, if we can have start with quick introductions, and then definitely we are getting into the not just the buzzword anymore, which is Gen AI. Uh, so, uh, Lior, can we start with you? Uh, sure. Uh, so, I, I'm Lior. I'm uh, one of the co-founders at, at Monte Carlo. Uh, we're the data observability company. Um, before Monte Carlo, I, I, I ran engineering at a, at a cybersecurity company called Barracuda. Um, and just to give you a little bit of a, a reminder or an introduction to Monte Carlo, uh, we we help we basically help companies make their data uh, reliable, right? Um, and so the idea is, you know, data teams are building uh, a lot of products that use data heavily, whether it's analytics or machine learning models or uh, applications like risk and pricing and inventory and things like that. Uh, and recently, also generative AI applications. Um, these products are, are obviously super complex and they depend on very long pipelines that do a lot of transformations and that, that rely on, on, on many different sources. Uh, and, and those systems break just like any anything created by humans, uh, whether it's because the right. data changed or because a code, the, the code changed and, 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 and had some unintended consequence or, or sometimes the infrastructure fails, right? Um, and uh, Monte Carlo is, is an observability solution, so it basically helps our customers uh, monitor uh, their entire stack end to end, uh, you know, all the way from source to, to end product, um, and and basically get proactively alerted when things break, uh, and have all the tools and information they need in order to quickly. Uh, understand what happened, where it happened, why it happened, so that so that uh, teams can react to it quickly. And so we basically help teams transition, you know, from a state where uh, when something breaks, they get a, an, an angry phone call from their customer, uh, internal, <laughs> right, you know, 
uh, you know, we, we, we switched them to, to, uh, to, to a more operational discipline where they, where, when they can kind of own issues and, and, and get alerted on them and, and, and fix them before they have, before they impact their, their consumers. Um, it borrows a lot of ideas from, from DevOps actually, from, uh, from observability in the software engineering world, it's 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 modeled uh, after it, and uh, you know if 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 folks are familiar with familiar with tools like Datadog or New Relic, um, mm-hmm. Monte Carlo is very much an analogy of that uh, for people that build uh, data products and and data systems. Yeah, thanks for that, Leo. I think uh, uh, interesting uh, stuff that Monte Carlo has always done, like. I came across Monte Carlo almost close to three years back, I guess. And that was the first time I spoke to Bohar as well. And I was uh, I was so happy for someone to identify such huge problem uh, and, you know, start with a company around it. So it was fun. Uh, uh, Ryan, what about you? Yeah. Hey, uh, so as, as Lior said, so Monte Carlo, I work here as a data scientist. I was one of the first who jumped on when we were Series A. Um, yeah. And to Lior's point about the monitoring piece of our pipelines, I sort of initially worked on building out some initial anomaly detection models, and now sort of mm-hmm. transitioned to doing more feature engineering for the general anomaly detection infrastructure that we've built and, and um, various tasks in unsupervised learning and time series anomaly detection there. Uh, so I've been at Monte Carlo now three years, and um, Loving it. Prior to that, I was uh, a computer science student at Stanford. So I was able to do some work in the LLM space there when it was back in its infancy, you know, uh, four young, long yeah. years ago. So uh, it's since exploded since then and, and super excited for this conversation because I think it's in a very electric space at the moment. So uh, really yeah, glad to be here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Ryan uh, joined us when we had, I believe, no customers. Uh, and, and now uh, more than 300 customers uh, later, uh, he he, uh, he knows a lot about, about our customers and, and, and how Monte Carlo works. I'm always excited. Wow, that's it's been an active three years. Yeah, so. that's super exciting. I remember, Ryan, uh, you know, a year back you mentioned, you know, you're coming out of college and this was your, uh, I, did you start with the internship or was it like the first uh, first gig that you took? Yeah, that's a funny story we don't have time for, but I initially joined thinking this would just be an internship because uh, I wanted to pause school during the pandemic. So I, I joined on with the thought I'd be doing some rather small constrained project. Uh, and we were a very small startup at the time, so I kind of pretty much just became a full-time data scientist and, and didn't stop wow. that, you know, wow. so... Uh, it's been fun. It's been it's been pretty crazy, but yeah, the, the space has changed a ton, and um, we've scaled a ton. So we've got new problems now than we did even a year ago when I when I spoke to you. So yeah, it's been great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, awesome. No, I love your journey for sure. And and uh, in terms of you know talking about the new and uh, evolving problems, obviously the bigger uh, like. The question that I have for you all is around the biggest challenges uh, that you see in the Gen AI adoption world. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure Leo, you talk to customers day in and out, and there are so many challenges out there. Would you like to share uh, any of those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so 
Um, yeah, we, we definitely talked to a lot of um, enterprises uh, that are, and, and, and it's probably safe to say that this, at this point, everybody's looking into how to adopt Gen AI and how to use it, right. um, how to use it to solve uh, their, their business problems. Um, I think there's kind of two, uh, you know, two big challenges, if you will. Uh, one is, uh, you know, first and foremost, is probably around uh, skills, right? Uh, yeah. We'll talk more about it later today, but like building a system that really uses generative AI to solve a business problem uh, is difficult and 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 create and and, and requires a lot of new uh, new capabilities that that um, nobody nobody's experienced in, right? Um, and I'm I'm talking about things like okay. prompt engineering, like how do you craft prompts that that produce good results, and it's um, orchestration, sure. like how do you structure uh, calls to to your uh, to your bot to, to get the best results and to and the idea of agents and everything, um, and even product and user experience is is uh, is something that has a lot of depth in the world of of of, uh, of generative AI, right? It's you know there's not a lot of people today that know how to you know how to map a business problem to a solution. That relies on LMs, right? Uh, and and how to design the user interface for it. Um, and and while Chat GPT is uh, probably one of the most intuitive products that's very easy to use, and you know, from from us, probably my 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 my, my parents are fully capable of using it, right? Um, but to implement um, you know a solution in the enterprise is is a different ball game, and it it is complicated and. Mm enterprises are definitely trying to figure out how to um, how, how to go about it uh, and so far you know you you can hardly bring experts uh, from the outside because because there are none to hire uh, yeah. and so uh, teams are definitely um, leaning on 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 uh, call it uh, tiger teams internal tiger teams that are tasked with you know, experimenting and learning and, and understanding how to use this new technology, um, you know, to get to broad adoption, to really put it in production in the, in the broad sense of the word, um, you know, companies are going to have to learn how to, how to scale that, how to, um, how to, I guess, teach more people uh, the skills that are necessary to build it and, and how to better understand where it fits and where it doesn't. Um, the second big challenge that, that we're seeing uh, is definitely around the, I'll, I'll call it enterprise readiness of the technology, right? Um, again, if you're talking about the consumer side of things, about ChatGPT, um, you're probably not worried too much about things like security and privacy uh, or, mm. or cost for that matter, um, or, or even reliability and trust. But all these things are very, very important to enterprise. So if you think about um, in, in the enterprise, it actually really matters who gets to see what information, right? You can't just expose everybody to everything, uh, both from a compliance perspective, but also from a from the perspective of security and kind of common business sense, right? Um, and so it's it's yet unclear or lots of ideas, but I don't think there's clarity around how you how how you actually do that with with LLMs. Um, there's the you know to to get bot adoption, you also need to make um, 
you know, mm. building and deploying uh, and managing those models a lot more scalable, right? It needs to be easier right now. Um, there aren't yet, you know, fully established technologies to, you know, to serve these models, to, to monitor them, uh, to deploy them, to test them. Um, and that, that, that's, that's going to take some work. Um, and, and obviously, you know, and, you know, the, the part that, that we're kind of most excited about, you know, from our perspective, um, re reliability and trust, right? Like, um, when mm -hmm. chat GPT gives you, uh, you know, hallucinates, uh, a restaurant that doesn't exist. Um, it's not the end of the world perhaps. Um, but but in the in a business context when you're delivering a service again either to internal stakeholders or external stakeholders um accuracy and reliability does matter um mm -hmm. and you need to be thinking about how to get to a you know not 100 percent obviously uh humans are not 100 percent either uh but you need to make it consistent and reliable enough and 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 and, and you know minimize hallucinations uh, so that uh, people can actually trust the solution and, and adopt it and, and use it for business purposes. Um, and so, yeah, lots of challenges to, uh, to, to, to address before this becomes uh, mass market, but super exciting. I think there's a lot of promise in the technology and, and it already does yeah. pretty amazing things and, and it'll, only, uh, it'll only become more impactful as we, as we figure out all these different uh, challenges. Yeah, no, I, I I love all these details. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Leori. In terms of, it's not a, not a, not even a year as of now. Like I remember, it yeah, everything kind of when ChatGPT kind of came up. Opening, I kind of gone out and announced somewhere in the end of November. Uh, things have evolved so much. Uh, but yeah, like you said, it's still early. Uh, people, but but now things are kind of getting there y'all are kind of solving those problems and identifying it right so that's interesting talking about problems obviously ryan uh what 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 do you think about it yeah well so so leora started to mention some of the the use cases right i think um yeah it's it strikes me that this is a space that's like at once completely new and, and then also a, a repeat of similar trends we've seen in the um, software and data spaces before right so there are aspects to this that are what Lear has been saying. There's, we're always going to need security compliance. Um, you're going to need to understand the, like the limitations and permissions, the access to certain data sources that you're going to allow, let's say an LLM application mm -hmm. to access. Um, and then on the flip side of that, there's, there's some stuff that's so new and there's so much that depends on, you know, what model, what generative model can we expect to be served by OpenAI in a year's time? I think it's really hard to predict. And I think that a lot of the use cases that are most compelling are kind of right on the corner of, of being accessible in terms of what the yeah. context like models can provide and various other technical constraints. Um, and I mean, the open source community is just explosive with these types of ideas right now and lots of cool, you know, live inference LLM application technologies coming out with um, whether you're looking at like Langchain open source projects or, or, or what is happening in the Llama ecosystem. I think it's... Yeah. Super volatile, uh, very hard and dizzying to keep track of, like what's top of mind to people, which is maybe why the generative AI, you know, drumbeat seems to sound super loud on LinkedIn uh, on occasion. But uh, <laughs> it's a super exciting space. And um, I mean, yeah, as you said, it's sort of, I feel like it's starting to take form compared to where we were messing with uh, our open AI access earlier in the year uh, or late last year. It's, uh, 
it's been transformative. Okay, interesting. That that kind of also, since we are on this topic of use cases as well, and I, I know there's a question around the use cases and uh, there are data scientists who are working on some of the Gen AI use cases. Uh, so uh, talking of that, uh, what are some Gen AI use cases uh, teams can think about implementing today? What, are, what areas of business do you think Gen AI will be particularly useful? Uh, and and in what areas do you think it will be difficult to apply as well? Any any thoughts around that? Yeah, I think I can take us from kind of the more uh, colloquial or casual applications of the technology all the way to sort of enterprise ready, complete application solutions. So starting mm-hmm. with what I do day to day, which is that I, we have open AI access and I uh, use it constantly right. to uh, help me code. So there's a lot of automation problems that I maybe don't want to write, but I have to write. So I need to visualize a certain plot and I'll go to OpenAI and, and ask GPT-3 to give me a scatter plot with a line on the XY axis and annotate all the points that are above that line. And it'll just spit out some some uh, some code that I can uh, yeah. run in a notebook. So I think it really speeds up the uh, exploration and development workflow for a data scientist specifically. And then across the software stack, I mean, uh, we use CodeGPT and various other Copilot and, and other automation systems for assisting with unit tests, for explaining why a unit test has failed or why a build has failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot There's a lot that's sort of immediately accessible without productizing it, right? With internal to, a, to a, yeah. an engineering organization. And then you can go into slightly more um, productized and, and, and enterprise solutions to talk about like knowledge workflow automation. So um, this is where you start getting outside of the, the, the direct software user realm. And you're talking about legal teams doing document right. discovery or, or tech summarization services. Uh, financial services can similarly kind of parse through large contexts and get uh, summarized text uh, or sales teams, whether that's discovery or outbound or what, what have you. Um, those are still internal use cases. Obviously, we're now starting to talk about uh, access to internal customer data, which is immediately where some of the, the flags around security and compliance that Lior has mentioned come up. Um, and there are, I, I think it, it's just going to be a transformative technology. I think that you can mm-hmm. think about like data democratization. Uh, we've already had a little bit of this with uh, like WYSIWYG uh, te- technologies like, like Looker or Tableau for democratizing data access across a team. And I just think it's going to, now that we have natural languages, the interface, it's the, the potential user base for that is massive. And there's a lot that can be done internal to the team. Um, I mean, support, chatbot support as well. Um, and then there are some more, like, we can talk about more complex use cases that are re- going to require more advanced LLM architectures, like, you know, sentiment analysis and um, semantic search and uh, yeah. various other, you know, more mature technologies. Um, but that sort of runs the, the scale of like what type of architectural complexity you want to bring into your organization's Gen AI effort and also yeah. uh, the guarantees on, on security that you're going to need to have uh, when you're starting to feed those models access to your own data, not just the public domain internet data they were trained on. Very interesting. Lior, what, what, what do you think? Um... I'll echo some of the things that, that Ryan mentioned and I'm definitely, or I think 
by far coding is one of the quintessential examples of something that uh, the generative AI does pretty well. Uh, thank, thank you to everybody to, who, who contributed to open source. Now, now it's being put to, to, mm. to good use, right? Um, so that's that's definitely a, a very strong use case. Um, I think there's strong use cases around uh, content creation, uh, where where accuracy is maybe not absolute accuracy is not required. Um, you know whether it's crafting an email or a blog post or things like that. We, we definitely see teams doing that. Um, and then probably the third pattern that I've seen uh, working out really well right now is um, the summarization, right? Whether it's summarizing a call or a document right. uh, or, or even like disparate sources of information. I've heard this really interesting use case. Um, uh, a company basically built an internal tool for uh, for their uh, sales team uh, that generates really succinct descriptions of every account uh, so that salespeople can actually have more meaningful conversations with customers and understand how to uh, how to how, how to get better adoption on the product how to how, how to sell more etc and so mm -hmm. um, you know definitely lots of uh, lots of exciting opportunities there um I, I think where it's more difficult to apply um generative ai uh at least for now and, and probably in the foreseeable future is um problems where there's uh complex reasoning uh involved right um and, and, and if mm -hmm. you just follow twitter uh or the kind of uh you know general media you might think that llms can replace humans uh, tomorrow and send all of us to the beach uh, while they do all of our work. But uh, the, the, the reality is it's it's not quite there. Uh, and when faced mm -hmm. with open-ended problems, um, you know, mo models uh, struggle. Uh, just to give you an, an example from our world, from data, right? Like uh, you can absolutely, given a, you know, you can absolutely give a model like, a set of schemas, um, and maybe a little bit of documentation about it, maybe not, uh, and it'll great create great, um, you know, SQL queries for you on top of that data to answer basic questions. Uh, but it can't um, take you know a bunch of data of raw data like data sources right from the source uh, and combine those data sets in in very meaningful way and model it to answer business problems in a way that, you know, the human um, data scientist or, 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 or data analyst would. Uh, and so, you, you know, there's a gap there. It can absolutely do the last mile, but it, it, it it's not yet at the point where it can do very complex uh, reasoning. So as I think that's definitely one limitation right now and, and, um, and it's critical for, for teams to, to acknowledge that, like what it can and cannot do, that will highly influence the uh, the, the odds of success when, when building a, um, a generative AI system. Um, I think probably the other kind of area where it's still difficult is, is where you need high accuracy with your answers, right? Um, and we touched a little mm -hmm. bit on it, but um, definitely a lot of cases where an incorrect answer is perfectly valid, uh, you know, when you're writing a, a blog post maybe, uh, or, or at least 
uh, when a human can go and, and kind of validate and verify and edit uh, can be extremely helpful. Um, but um, but you know when you when you want to know what's one plus one, uh, you you need it to be two, right? It can be two point one, right? And so um, so people implementing generative AI should really think about that you know where, where on the spectrum they are and like how well like uh, a generative model can can fit there because generative models at the end of the day are not optimized to give true answers they uh, they're optimized to give answers that look like what a human might write right uh exactly math, that's the mathematical definition right and so the, 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 there's you know at least in the the kind of vanilla use case uh, there's there's not much guarantee around accuracy or or or, or reliability. So, yep, yeah. I like that. Uh, in, in, go ahead. I guess color. I just yeah. I, I want to mention like to 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 make that concrete because because I work a lot on um, our our tech stack directly and in our DevOps cycle there's I would say a lot of generative AI use case at the at the development side of the the pipeline and then when you get to deployment it's nowhere near any of our deployment architecture. Uh, and that's for, that's for you know principled reasons. So I mentioned like you know uh, automation workflow and and cogeneration and and automation for engineers. And I want to qualify that right. Like um, it's great for generating code, and if you need the code to be exactly right, it it is not it, it should not yet be allowed to do much. Uh, this is the biggest problem with like Gen AI hallucinations. I remember we did one internal test where we were trying to get a generative model to um, to, to work on testing invariants to key production tables in our database. And we asked it, can you make sure that this table over here has no nulls in it? Um, and it proposed dropping the table from the database to make sure that no null, null values were in it, which works, right? That, that answers my query. Uh, but you, know, you don't want that type of behavior anywhere near your production system. And so I think there's obviously the need for some declarative policies there before you go on like bringing that level of automation uh, to a more critical place. The way Leo was mentioning. Yeah, I, I love it. Uh, great explanation there. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, also, since we are on this topic, I know there are a few questions. Uh, let's maybe jump on questions and then we kind of, uh, I also want to get into the bits where we talk a little about the role of data observability and quality in, in, in this Gen AI tech stack, I would say. I uh, would love to hear your thoughts, but uh, before that, let's uh, see. Let's take one question here from YouTube. Uh, can you provide some real-world examples where lack of data observability led to significant challenges or failures in Gen AI implementation? Very interesting question. I know we were getting onto this, but uh, any thoughts, Leor? Uh, anything that you can share, and then we'll also ask Ryan a little about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Let, let me, uh, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, and so, you know, but before I jump into examples, um, it's probably important to understand how data observability even fits with generative AI implementations, right? And why it's even there. Um, and, 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 and it's as follows. Um, so, so, so we talked about some of the use cases that are working really sure. well right now, right? And one of the, you know, and, and let's take code generation as an example. One of the key reasons it works well is that there is a lot of public information out there 
there's a lot of open source code uh, that was used to train these models, right? And so they have a lot to learn from uh, that's public. Uh, and so they can answer questions about code pretty well. Uh, and if you think about it, if you think about the business problems that, that, that people have in the enterprise or the business problems that, uh, that enterprises are trying to solve for their customers, uh, right. those are typically not easily answered with public information, right? If I'm a mm -hmm. user inside an enterprise, and I want to understand, I don't know, how much did I sell in uh, last year in uh, India, for example, that's not, that's typically not public information, right? So a generative AI model has mm -hmm. no ability whatsoever to, um, to answer that question. And so, um, um, and, and so like, how do you make these models useful in those scenarios? Um, there's probably two possible answers there, depending on the, on the use case. Um, you might either do what's called um, uh, retrieval augmented generation or RAG, uh, if, if you've been following the Gen AI uh, news. Uh, which means that um, the model won't necessarily answer your question directly, but rather it would query a database to do so, right? Whether it's a vector database or a data warehouse or something, but it basically, instead of trying to answer that question directly, it would do something like, oh, um, you know, are there any documents or tables in the database that could answer questions about sales? Um, and then maybe I'll craft, you know, maybe the, the model will craft a query to that database that filters for, you know, location equals India, um, and date equals whatever. And then basically retrieve the information from a database, um, that is accurate and reliable and might have, you know, proprietary data, um, and then, uh, respond back with it. Right. And so that's, you know, that's how you can make. Uh, generative models answer questions about data that wasn't there in the training set in the first place. Uh, the other way uh, people are, are kind of attempting to do it is what's, what, what's called um, fine tuning, uh, which is the idea of like, let's take a, a foundation model, right? Something that's maybe even trained on, on public information like OpenAI's uh, ChatGPT or, or Llama2 from Meta or whatever. Um, and then let's, add a smaller subset, maybe as, as small as like several hundred examples um, that have specific knowledge or patterns that are important for the business, right? And so you're basically encoding uh, more information into the model uh, that, that didn't necessarily come from a, from a public source. Um, either way, whether you're doing RAG or you're doing fine tuning, what you've essentially done is you've built a data pipeline, right? Because the information that is in the vector database or in the data warehouse that's being used to answer questions in the RAG model, or alternatively, the training set, which you use to fine tune the, the, the generative model, both come from taking a bunch of internal data source, you know, aggregating them and merging them in various ways uh, and putting them in a, in a data store that, that, that is available for the model, right? 
Um, and that's where data observability fits in, right? Um, the ability yep. to monitor um, and, 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 and meet SLAs with those pipelines is critical because um, if the data in the data store uh, or if the data in the training set is broken, is wrong for a number, for, for whatever mundane reason, the generative AI application is going to be wrong too, right? It cannot, uh, it cannot overcome that, right? And that's where data observability fits in. It's the tool that basically helps you make all the underlying data that the generative model relies on uh, reliable, or at least reliable enough for, for the use case, right? Um, so to take very concrete examples, um, this, it, it may not even be specific to generative AI, uh, but if you're, um, you know, if you're using data, uh, you know, from an operational system to inform uh, your, 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 the, the table that describes your sales, right? Mm -hmm. And I know the account ID comes as null because someone pushed a code change that, 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 that does not populate that field. Um, the, the, it, it might, you know, go through multiple processing stages uh, before it gets downstream to the model, but it's going to be wrong, right? The answer is going to be wrong because the, because uh, the database is not going to have the answer, right? It's going to have the wrong answer. And so, um, and there's a variety of other problems that could, uh, that, that could occur that might make the data wrong, you know, whether it's a, you know, a failed uh, job uh, or, uh, or again, someone adding, you know, a filter to one of the uh, intermediate transformations that, that, that has some, you know, some unintended consequence, right? Um, and so that's where kind of data observability fits in. Okay, that's fantastic. Brian, anything that you would like to add? Yeah, I think Leo answered it pretty nicely. I think I would only add that my expectation, uh, like I would qualify that there's probably gonna be a greater need for data observability with these sort of non-parametric information retrieval systems like RAG systems. Um, because the data in those information retrieval settings is live in the sense that you need to be pulling live sales data from um, your internal database. And uh, now if, if, you, if you're doing something like building a Gen AI system that can help a business analyst answer a question with a graph, uh, you're effectively like you're doing an analyst job. And, and we know from the, the current era of uh, big data that that if, if the data is wrong, the analyst is wrong about it. You do get these massive problems with misreporting uh, information or making you know poorly informed business intelligence decisions. Um, so I think I think RAG is probably the more interesting use case to look at. I, I also think that there's like a we can get very far afield with with questions to do with like what's in the training set of a uh, large generative model because these are trained on what's supposedly public domain internet. But right. If you're I don't want to dive too deeply into a rabbit hole here, but if you're working for a media company and you have only the rights to certain characters and you're asking some Gen AI system to um, impersonate characters for you, uh, it's pretty important to know what it's been trained on, what's in its corpus, and what it's willing to output for you before you go releasing that to like your general audience and all of a sudden you could be facing copyright infringement for not knowing that your system could uh, impersonate Donald Duck without the rights to the to the character. So uh, the data is critical. Yeah. Like the data makes the whole model. And I think that that's um, 
there will be there will be lots of challenges to adoption in in the data observability. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I love it. Uh, in terms of uh, something around this, the same topic, I think there's a question here from George. Uh, so George has a question around data quality aspects. How is the data quality of the training data ensured? Uh, any any thoughts there? All right, do you want to do you want to take it or? Yeah, I I can take this. I think there's a there's an adage that ninety percent of any data scientist's time is data cleaning. Um, that's probably still true if you're an LLM engineer. Um, <laughs> I think that you know, I mean, part of the like, I, I guess there's a couple things that make generative AI especially interesting in the last couple of years of of, of machine learning and AI. Um, and one is the architecture and the scalability of it. So the fact that like GPT-4, for example, is trained on um, massive Azure clusters, like an unprecedented amount of compute is applied. And the architecture, which is closed sourced in OpenAI, is obviously state of the art. Um, and then the, the third piece is, is the data. Um, and data is, is, is oil, is gold in this industry, right? Um, good data makes good models. And you're going to get, I mean, ultimately, as Lior said, these models are, are still just maximum likelihood estimators with really complex parameter spaces. So uh, your model will learn to emulate the data that you feed it. And so all of the same data quality problems that you would have if you were building a more naive, uh, simple supervised algorithm or sentiment classification algorithm, uh, they still apply. So you're still going to have problems where you'll need to interpolate missing data sources, or you'll need to do schema coercion, or you'll need mm -hmm. to make sure that, um, I mean, we can get really into the weeds about the way that the model is doing like tokenizing of word inputs and making sure that uh, if you capitalize North America or leave it lowercase with an underscore in the middle, that you want to map it to the same vector in your vector DB, um, or else you're going to have sort of divergent behaviors. Um, so the quality of the training data, I'd say, is still ensured in, in the same way. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that just because the models are much bigger that um, previous domain knowledge that's been learned in the big data space since really the 90s or before, like none of that really goes out the window. Um, I do think it becomes very important uh, as you allow these systems to automate more processes inside of a, an application setting if they're allowed to proactively act on that data and, and importantly, you know, change that data by uh, recalculating embeddings or, or what have you. Um, yeah, I think that, I think that the, the mechanisms are still very similar um, in that respect. So uh, I don't know, Leroy, if you have any qualifying thoughts to that. But. Yeah, I agree. It goes back to the fundamentals, right? Like the, the training set yeah. for, uh, for, for, for generative AI or any AI is um, is no different to any other data set, which means you know it goes back to to the foundations. Make the make sure the data is fresh. Make sure you have all the data you need and nothing more. Uh, make sure uh, you know every single uh, feature uh, meets the the quality um, quality requirements that 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 apply to that business case, right? And, and Ryan mentioned some examples um make sure the schema is right <laughs> uh make sure you know you know where it came from and understand how it was created right the lineage yeah. aspects of it right 
it's it's all the the block and tackle of of, of any data set like at the end they generative ai models are they're quite magical but but they're not magic right like at the end of the day they they rely on on good training sets and and, and those are simply data sets exactly uh, it, it definitely goes back to you know obviously the foundation and then uh getting the ball rolling uh to make sure that the data quality is good enough for uh the models but uh that brings me to another question i know there's a few questions and uh, for our audience i'll be taking those questions as well but uh since uh i mentioned about the role of data observability and quality in 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 this journey ai tech stack i would love to learn a little about that so how does the concept uh first of all uh you can share about that but also uh i would love to learn a little about the data downtime uh and how does that concept apply to ai and ml models too so uh yeah would leon maybe you want to give, a, give it a shot first uh so i go okay uh data downtime uh refers to the idea of um of, of you know using data to measure the reliability of data right uh, so data downtime like if I if I explain it very you know take it very simply is this idea of like when the data is broken is not fit for purpose right is not good enough to do its intended purpose uh, we call it downtime right in the same way that we would call you know a website not loading uh, we would say that the website mm -hmm. is down right so in the same way you can say that the, 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 a data set is down if it's not meeting its intended purpose. Um, and if you can define that, uh, you can also start measuring it, right? And understanding when is it down, when is it not down? Um, and if you can start measure it, measuring it, you can start controlling it and managing it, right? You can start understanding like, okay, how frequently do I have downtime? Why does it happen? Um, is it about how long it takes me to find out that I have a problem or is it about how long it takes me to solve the problem once I know it's there? Um, and what could I even do to, to you know, to, to prevent that problem from happening in the first place, right? Um, and so having that definition of data downtime actually helps uh, control for it and make data more reliable. Um, I think you could probably uh, make a, you know, a similar analogy in, in the kind of, AI space, right? Um, and, and and you need to think about that application as a whole, right? Like AI is not just you know a mod, like a bunch of bits that describe a model. It's an application that's built around it, right? For example, ChatGPT, right? Um, okay. And that application being up uh, means a lot of things. Uh, it means that 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 app like the code that's running that application and the servers are up right that kind of the traditional definition of of software uptime or or, or, or application uptime uh, but it also means that the model is performing well right because if the model uh spits out wrong information um the app is not working it's not delivering its intended purpose right um if i ask jet gpt what color is the sky and it tells me red uh, you know, it's not working, right? And so um, being able to measure that and start describing when the model is down um, allows you to start thinking about like, okay, how do I how do I make it better? Like how, or how do I make it good enough, right? We, we don't want 100% uptime. It's not 
pragmatic and it's not necessary for most applications, but uh, but we do want to manage it uh, to a certain degree. And and, um, and as, I, as I said, the measurement and definition is critical because you can then, you know, analyze and get better and improve and, and learn. So, yep. Ryan, anything you, you, you okay. want to add around that? Um, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about data downtime. We've certainly been talking about data downtime at Monte Carlo for a long time. We break it into to pillars, mm -hmm. and those pillars have sort of simple semantic definitions, like uh, so freshness, like is the data up to date enough? Um, and, and we see ML ops teams, you know, using these types of concepts to, to uh, action the problems resulting from data downtime. So maybe you have an ML ops tool and you're tracking the um, you know, prediction loss as the model is served in, in production. And if you have like a big spike in your mean squared error, um, it could be due to the fact that the the data serving the model has gone stale and you haven't retrained it in six days. And all of a sudden it's trying to use user data that's, you know, not up to date with the way that um, uh, behavior has changed. Uh, and equally, like with freshness, there's also, we look at, um, size so like the volume of tables or the the amount of, of data that you can uh, feed to the model is that looking constant or have you inserted an exploding join and now you've got 10 billion rows that have nulls everywhere uh going into your system um and then the distribution of like categorical values like null fields and and uh distinctness of things like id columns and stuff um so there's a, there's a lot that, that we've written about that and it's still very relevant here so um i guess that's that's all i would add yeah, no, I think uh, it's super interesting. Uh, just being careful of time in the questions that we have already. Uh, uh, what I'm going to do is uh, take a few questions real quick. Uh, I know there's this question from Ares. Uh, uh, he's asking what is next for MLAI Monte Carlo observability. First of all, I, 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 for our audience, I would love to learn a little about uh, uh, and I'm pretty sure the audience would love to learn uh, uh, about this as well, about the difference between ML observability and data observability. Uh, what's like the key difference and uh, what's the role for each of those? And then maybe we can take this question uh, uh, as a follow-up. Yeah, uh, great question, Robert. Um, so uh, those are indeed two distinct things, ML observability and, and data observability. Um, ML observability, uh, th there's lots of analogies, but very different problems, right? Uh, the the yeah. analogy is probably both spaces are trying to make a certain system reliable by monitoring it and alerting on issues and giving people context to help them solve issues, right? Um, but they do it in very different domains. Mm -hmm. so, ML observability is designed for primarily for ML engineers or ML ops uh, folks. Um, and it mostly focuses on measuring the performance or reliability of a model in the context yeah. of, of kind of online inference, right? And, and Ryan spoke to some of the specific metrics that, that are involved in that earlier, but it's this idea that if you have a, a model being served in production, uh, you can keep track of of its of its predictions, um, whatever the domain mm -hmm. is, um, and you can start correlating it to the to the features that were uh, that 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 were input into the model, 
et cetera, et cetera. And so it's it's a lot about the online inference piece uh, and for the people that are responsible for it that deploy these models and, and, and track their online performance. Uh, data observability is designed for uh, for a different use case and different people. Um, it's, it's, it's mostly focused on data engineers, data analysts, data scientists, um, and it mostly focuses on um, data pipelines, if you will, right? On the whole process that takes various data sources and combines them into, you know, uh, a, a table or a dashboard or, or or even a machine learning model, right? One of the use cases for data observability um, is, you know, you might be preparing a data set so as to train your model uh, or to do batch inference for a model. Um, and this can absolutely be monitored with, with a data observability solution. Um, but if you're looking to, um, you know, to, to, to monitor a, you know, online inference model that's, that's being served, that's something that you would do with, with ML observability. And, and, and it just looks at, at different kinds of stacks, different kinds of metrics, uh, different kinds of- Got it. Yeah. Interesting. Ryan, anything that you would like to add? I think Leo did a great job. Um, see there, we can get to other yeah. questions. I think that's a good designation. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so like, uh, obviously, like the follow up question was what's next uh, for Monte Carlo. So I would say in the data observability world, what's next for Monte Carlo? In the data observability world. Um, uh, as always, we're, uh, we're mostly I'm sorry, uh, mostly learning from our customers, right? And, and we have the privilege of working with uh, with some great data teams across the board in various industries and, you know, applying some of these learnings to make the product better. Um, mm -hmm. So to give you a few examples, um, we're constantly working on extending our, our stack uh, and our support uh, for the different tools that the data people use, right? We've uh, over the years, we've built support for all of the major data warehouses, all the major BI tools. This year, we worked a lot on, on orchestration tools like Fivetran and Airflow nice. and DBT, right? All of them have uh, very deep integrations in Monte Carlo with very rich information and, and features. Um, mm -hmm. And we're now extending it even further, working on a lot of uh, transactional databases like OLTP technologies like Postgres and MySQL and whatnot. Um, we are um, we are looking into the streaming world, so basically Kafka integrations are coming up, um, and and even considering um, you know adding support for the generative AI stack, whether it's Pinecone or or the generative AI capabilities coming out of Snowflake and Databricks, and so um, that's a uh, uh, th that's an area of, of, of active development. Uh, we're also investing a ton in uh, in performance and in in, in in scalability, right? Uh, not the performance of our own ap application, but rather helping our customers understand the performance of their data pipelines. Um, we're basically allowing customers to un understand and analyze how different workloads are are how long they run and how much they cost uh, so that that can be controlled and monitored and, and, and optimized. Uh, it has both a cost implication, but also a reliability uh, implication because, um, you know, when, thing, when things run too long, uh, they are delayed and they cause downstream consumers to have 
out-of-date information and um and, and there's a reliability and in, 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 in user experience aspect to it as well right when when dashboards load slow um uh they they in some sense don't don't work and are not trusted right uh and so uh we're giving teams like a comprehensive solution to uh to analyze all of that and, and optimize and, and and manage it to uh to performance um we're also adding a bunch of capabilities around monitoring data in, in, in new ways. Uh, you know, one example of that is, uh, you know, for the first time, uh, we're helping customers actually uh, compare data across different data stores, right? And and basically make sure that the data sets in one place uh, are consistent with data sets in another, uh, in another source. Uh, we've seen that need coming up. Uh, a lot with our customers uh, for a variety of different use cases. Uh, and so, yeah, lo lots of exciting stuff. That's just the tip of the iceberg of, of what we're up to, but uh, hopefully it gives you some ideas about what, what's top of mind. Uh, so. Yeah, this is pretty interesting. And uh, one thing that I'm kind of, you know, also understanding from the conversation that we are having is uh, even in the GNI world, I think data observability kind of plays a very important role uh and it's just gonna grow from here because the things that you Leor, ryan obviously the monte Carlo team is doing is pretty interesting i can't wait wait to watch this space uh grow uh I, I, you know i am pretty sure there's something huge as well that's coming for 2024 so uh, i'll i'll stick to you know what's happening uh but i also know impact is happening next uh, month on the november 8th so looking forward to that too i'll get on that question as well what we can expect from impact in the speakers who are joining because the list looks pretty good but before that one quick question as you know as the lines blur between ai data and general tech uh, uh in the future do you think uh software engineers will inevitably become either ML engineers or data engineers, or do, do you think these roles will remain separate? Like that's something that I, I get asked a lot as well, but uh, you all know it better. You all are in this space working then and out. Brian, what's, what's your take on this? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's one of the most interesting questions here. I don't think, that I would say that all software engineers are going to become ML engineers. I do think they might all become prompt engineers. And, mm -hmm. and that's a that's a qualification. I mean, um, you know, anytime there is a uh, there is a significant technological change in the software industry, to take a random example out of a hat, like containerization, I don't think that most software engineers became experts in how the system is actually built under the hood, but they became experts in using uh, you know compute containers to get their, their tasks done. And similarly, I think that the, the software developer as user of large language model output is going to become increasingly a, a ubiquitous need. Lior mentioned earlier mm -hmm. in this call that um, there's sort of uh, no standards set down and there's no education for people to be sort of, <laughs> I mean, there are early, like you can be certified in prompt engineering courses on Coursera or something. Um, but it's not yeah. like people are coming out of school with this as a central piece of their education, the same way that, you know, conventional data science techniques would be part of it. Um, but it really makes a significant difference. I mean, before we start talking about um, implementing a RAG architecture, even just reprompting a system with a subtly different 
context is going to give you a drastic improvement in performance for certain things. And that, that's a real art form, I think. Um, and there are going to be evolved standards for how to interface with these systems, I think, across the software industry. Um, and, and I think that's very encouraging. I think there was some some doomsday prepping that went on when LLMs hit the scene for the first time where you're saying like, is software engineering a dead profession now? And like, clearly it's not. I mean, there's such, such a rich space to be kind of augmenting the capabilities of data engineers and software engineers and, and data analysts and scientists with the output of these systems because they provide that linguistic interface for getting value out of, of data that you previously had to go get through other cumbersome means. Um, so yeah, I think everyone's gonna become prompt engineers and uh, many people will become literate mm -hmm. in the vocabulary around like, how do I use a Langchain agent to get the thing I want done? And they're not gonna know uh, the, the gory details of what's going on under the hood with the foundation model. But I think that that, that type of vocabulary is gonna become really ubiquitous and the systems will become kind of really intimately baked into the, the enterprise software lifecycle. So I'm excited to watch that happen. Love it. Uh, anything you want to add on the art? No, I agree with Ryan. I mean, we're not all yes. going to become uh, proficient in, in how uh, how large, large language models are, are necessarily trained or served, but uh, we're going to use them quite a bit and we're going to have to learn the, the, the art and craft of of doing that. I don't know if it's going to call, be called a software engineer, a data engineer, an ML engineer, or a prompt engineer, or something else, but uh, but we all, we'll, we'll all be users of those technologies and, and hopefully putting them to good use. Oh, yes, for sure. I am excited to see and watch this space. Uh, but talking about the future, uh, like I said, uh, Impact is happening next month. I'm pretty excited. I saw the lineup. I signed up immediately. Uh, what can we expect this year? Uh, what are, what are you all expect uh, excited about? In uh, I see in super interesting lineup. So, Leo, tell us more about it. Yeah, so Impact is coming up on uh, November eighth, I believe. It's virtual, so you can join from anywhere. You don't have to to, to travel. Uh, we're gonna have Snowflake yep. and, and Databricks sponsoring. So some great talks coming out coming out from both of them, and these are. Two of the most exciting technologies in data and in, in, in general in generative AI as well. Um, but in addition to that, we'll, we'll, we have a, a nice lineup of uh, I think over 20 talks. Um, you know, some some that I'm particularly excited about. Uh, Billy Bean is going to come in, and if you watch the movie uh, yeah. Moneyball, uh, it's it's based out of after him. It's it's the idea of like how do you get data to to perform better in, in, in professional sports uh which is pretty incredible yeah. um annie duke is going to be there she's she's pretty amazing she she used to be a a professional poker player now she helps companies wow. um use you know strategies uh you know similar strategies and in, in, in making decisions under you know conditions of uncertainty um eli collins is going to be there he's the uh, VP of product for AI at Google. Uh, so definitely has a good nice. understanding of, of how to build some of the best AI out there and how to how to use it in the real world. And then we're gonna have uh, a lot of speakers from uh, from great uh, data teams at, at Fox, at Mavon, at BetterUp, uh, and, and many others kind of explaining what, what they do with data and, and, and how to make it reliable. So um, definitely would love to, to, to see you all there. Uh, we may or may not mention 
generative AI there on top about it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'll hope to see you there. No, I think uh, I'm really excited and uh, great event that you all put uh, together every year. Uh, so looking forward to it. Uh, but uh, one last question for both of you. Uh, if folks want to reach out and learn more uh, from you, where can they reach out to you? Ryan, LinkedIn, or any other spot? LinkedIn, yes, I, I should be tagged. You can find my LinkedIn profile on any of the Monte Carlo stuff. Um, responsive there. I'm on X. Uh, I believe you can find my uh, Twitter profile through that X profile. Um, and my email rkerns at moneycarlodata.com. I saw a lot of questions uh, in the chat going into more technical detail that I'd be super happy to follow up on if people want uh, like a deeper primer. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating technical space to be getting into. So you can definitely shoot me an email um, uh, if you'd like and happy to respond there. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, Lior, when can people find you? Um, I I do hang out on LinkedIn quite a bit, so definitely connect with me there and, and send me a message. Awesome. I, I try to be responsive. Um, and same, uh, also on X, uh, if 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 that's your if that's what you fancy. So we'll, we'll see. I'll see you somewhere <laughs> on there. Awesome. This is great. Thanks, uh, Lior and Ryan, for once again visiting the Robert Show. It was such a pleasure to host you both. Can't wait to see this space evolving in uh, y'all making so many developments in not only just the data observability space, but also connecting it with the Gen AI world. Uh, and definitely looking forward to impact. Uh, I'll be there attending this session virtually. And uh, also for those who wish to attend, I'll be shooting out a link uh, in the chat so y'all can sign up for the event. Uh, and thank you to our audience for asking such interesting and amazing questions. Thanks, thanks once again, all of you. See you Thanks, Robert. See you at Impact. Thanks, Robert. Awesome.